0: I always say that valuation is more of an art than it is a science because it's not something like where it's even accounting, right? When you say, oh, accounting is so black and white, but even then there are nuances that you can do to accounting, but valuation is even more so. There's a lot of gray areas. And and the reason why I like it is because it's similar to the law where you can basically argue your case, right? And it's all about creating a story. (laughs)
1: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to a brand new edition of Social Confos. I'm together with my host, Diego. How are you doing today,
2: Diego? I am doing great. And speaking of a great new week, it's almost the end of the first quarter of 2023. That went by in a blink of an eye. Yeah, thanks Mark. for, for, for promoting me with that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm doing great. Excited to have a fun conversation again today on business. But before we go get into that, I saw you share an article today of Mark Schaefer. He came here at a conference last year during social media conference, and he shared his experience in Suriname, and I read it thoroughly today, and... Quite an interesting date, quite some humor in it too, confusing an alligator with a Cayman, so <laughs> there was some fun, some fun tidbits, so that I do one recommend didn't it like
1: an alligator. I can't understand why he thought it was an alligator uh, it, it was big,
2: definitely an interesting day and Suriname. if you haven't read the article yet, we'll share it later on, but yeah, so. Coming back to today, today we're going to talk a bit more about a little fun topic. We love to talk about entrepreneurship, business, and we're going to take it a step further today with our guest floor today. And she is actually also from Wiley, but not a fellow, but she was a host. So we got someone from the other end of the spectrum. And she's also part of the YLAI Alumni Advisory Board. And that's from the YLAI side, but Our guest for today is a true expert in the world of business valuation and strategy, with over 20 years of experience in different companies and at different stages and industries, and she has helped countless business proposals propel themselves to new heights. Uh, She's the founder of Spark Patient Consulting, My Jeepney Stop, and Emporium, and she's also served many different leadership positions in nonprofit organizations. So please help me welcome up to the stage, Cristina Esperutu. Christina, hi. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hi, you look...
0: I am good. I'm good. Thank you. You look so glad to have here. a
2: cozy setting there. And to, to, <laughs> to kick us off, actually, so I was doing some research on, you know, very from you. You already mentioned you're from the Philippines originally, but there's another fact mm-hmm. that I saw in your bio. You have quite an interest in the number 420. I'm curious to their relationship of the number 420 and cannabis. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Sure. Well, you, you know, well, I guess my first question is is does it have the same relationship in Suriname versus oh, in the yeah, US? Oh, yes, totally.
1: It's the same thing. It it does? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, so so apparently it was it became a holiday based on like I think they said that there was a, a group of friends who basically decided to make 420 a holiday like April 20th, right? So now every time every every time there's April 20th here they actually do have a lot of celebration and I don't know if it's the same thing in Suriname but you can find so many different celebrations like in different, even even when even in states where cannabis is not legal they still find a way to celebrate it so but yeah so I've been involved in I was involved in cannabis for for quite a bit before before the pandemic but my biggest involvement was that I I actually worked in the edibles industry and so what I did was I connected Chefs, cannabis chefs to people who wanted to do dinners that have cannabis infused food in them. So what I did was that I had a website called 420 Foodie Club, and then we just did a lot of dinners, a lot of dinners and a lot of events, just connecting chefs and edible makers to people who want to consume them, consume them safely. Um,
1: Wow. So that's one thing that people don't
0: know about me. So,
1: (laughs) so, so, but just like with, 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 with cannabis and like the health functions of it, was there a connection that well that it was also focusing on healthier food or is it more from a relaxation perspective that people would like kind of combine the two?
0: You know what? It really depends. So be- be- before in the beginning, so basically, you know, you, you, as you said, you can either do it for pleasure, right? More recreational or you do it for medicinal purposes. So we've actually worked with both. So on the recreational side, obviously we have the dinners where if people wanted to enjoy, it's kind of the same thing as having a glass of wine or having a cocktail, except it doesn't give you a hangover after. That's what I always say. (laughs) Maybe a different kind of hangover, but I think it's a much more pleasant hangover, right? So we have that on the recreational side. And then on the medicinal side, we actually work with a lot of seniors and a lot of people who have chronic illnesses. And then we help them through educational seminars. And for some of them, we had gone to the dispensaries with them as well. So we had people who had gone to the dispensaries with elderly folks and trying to find the best one for them. So the most interesting fun fact was that the oldest one that I had accompanied to a dispensary was a 95 year old woman. So who wanted to pick some edibles for her? And I go, you know what? You got the right person. I will help you. Wow. Yeah. So that was, <laughs> that was the oldest woman they have that, that, that I've helped got to a dispensary. So.
2: So that's a really interesting fact. I, I wasn't expecting <laughs> yes. that at all. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. I always wondered where the 4.20 came from. And now I know it's actually a date.
0: <laughs> it's a date. Yeah. Yes, April 20th. Awesome. Yeah. At 4.20 p.m., by the oh. way. So that's the official time. too. Interesting, interesting.
2: <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So the English, there's yeah, that-
1: another thing that I want to jump into before we kind of start off because like, it's a really small world, world. And, and there's always been this theory on six degrees of separation. But this, the interesting part of how small this world is, last week we had a, a guest that well, we are, I actually met through a group of writers that is writing books. And this time, Diego has met you through Eye or to the Eye program. And our guest from last week was also based out of California. And you are also based out of Mm. California, which is like showing how small the world is. But then again, you used to live on the other side of the world as well, in the Philippines. So what I really wanted to know is like being having seen like both sides of the world, kind of like how was the experience for you because you were a teenager when you moved to the U.S.? So what are things that stayed with you culturally? That you took with you from the Philippines or your family took took with them. That you've completely Mm -hmm. integrated in your life and still is part of your life. And what is something that is totally American that you never knew about before you moved there. That's also become a part of who you are.
0: Oh, okay. So I moved to the U.S. when I was 15. So at 15, I was, I think I was just barely starting high school when I moved. So I think that I honestly, I think the biggest thing that I guess I can think about it in terms of culture shock was that A, the way that people dressed. (laughs) You know, when I, I had this misconception of, yeah, like when I was watching in the Philippines, I was watching all these different shows. And then I thought that everyone dressed like that or that everyone in California surfed or everyone in California were all blonde, so it That's right? basically the media.
2: And, <laughs> the, the media yes, exactly.
0: Exactly. And then I go here and I go, wow, there's so many. There, there are the, the California. Since I live in Southern California, it's so di- culturally diverse that there are groups here that are, there's Chinatown, there's Filipino town, there's different towns in California. And it's just so, just so diverse, right? So that's something that was unexpected to me. But yeah, so I think for that one, and then I I think you had mentioned about like one thing that I had brought with me is that when people find out that I'm Filipino, they always say, "Oh my gosh, I love their food!" Mm. Like, can you cook anything? (laughs) So it's always food related, right? So which is which is funny because culture is always a lot of it revolves around. Yeah, food
2: uh, brings a lot of people together, and I think some. If I'm not mistaken, Filipinos love sweets, right? Because uh, when I was studying abroad, I had some Filipino friends and they were always stuffing us with sweets and stuff.
0: <laughs> oh, yes, yes. You, we, we, we love to feed people. So that's, that's our love language. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. no,
2: we, we have a diverse set of food here as well. But on the, on the mm. flip side from Chanduk's question, is there anything American that you've kind of, kind of adopted for yourself as well?
0: oh yeah so i guess just a quick story so when i first came here i mean i knew english but not as not as well right so one the the way that i learned english was watching tv shows so a lot of stuff for example saved by the bell i don't know if that's something that you know so saved by the bell was a thing i watched yes and so so i remembered adopting a lot of the you know a lot of the lingo right because i go oh no this is probably how how, you know, how, how kids here in America talk, right? And so, of course, I kind of missed on some of them. I'm like, oh, I guess they don't use that lingo anymore because I was watching Save by the Wells I was, you know, probably like five or 10 years older <laughs> than, yeah. Yeah. The older, older episodes
1: yeah. with the older slang. Yes.
0: Yes. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I think it's, you know, the, And aside from California, you know, California is very multicultural, but I also lived in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania was where I went to law school and business school. And so even Pennsylvania and California are two different, just two very different cultures. So even that was an adjustment. So I think because the U.S. is so big that there are just so many different cultures in between the East Coast and the West Coast. So,
2: Oh, that's cool. So you did your high school, started there, then you... Did your university in Pennsylvania. And was it always uh, the business and law, like the business world always interest you from a young age? Or is that something you kind of grew into?
0: Oh, yeah, it's something I grew into. I, I didn't expect to go to law school. I knew I wanted to be in business somehow, but I wasn't really sure. But I know I wanted to be in a business where it's multicultural, A, and then I get to meet different kinds of people. So after I went to, in between... Living in California and then also living in Pennsylvania, I I lived in D.C. as well. And then I lived in France for a little bit. So that really, and I love to travel. So for me, that's just a natural extension of of what I do personally, but also in my business. So I just really love communicating and really dealing with an international community.
2: Okay, one travel question before we go into the business side. Is there a dream destination that you have not, been go- have not gone to yet and that's still on your list? And why?
0: Oh, I'm going to have to say Suriname because because of you guys. You talked about the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about how it's the most forested area in the world, right? Yeah. yeah. More than 90%. Yeah,
2: I... Awesome. We'd be happy to welcome you and yeah. show you around definitely when you get here. Right, that, that's, that's a that's <laughs> a that's
0: a plug for people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> also, I, I do want to ask the question because I may, I noticed that within your business, the multiculturality is multiculturality is very important. You even say like my Jimmy Stop. That's a multicultural marketing agency. That's also one of your businesses, mm-hmm. and it, clearly you focus on on the multicultural aspect as well. I'll, where did where where did that passion come from to say like, hey, I think that's a very underrated part and underrated aspect when you talk about, about business to understand the different cultures so how did that become a big part of of your your focus for, for for business
0: oh yeah that's a good question because one thing people don't realize is that you know when you're dealing mainstream right you have a lot of the nuances that are you know that are not necessarily there as when you're dealing with something that's multicultural I mean, for example, even a simple, like I, when I did valuations for a firm that I used to work for, we did a lot of work with Asia. And so even as simple as when you're handing out a business card or when you're saying yes versus no, you know, a lot of Asian cultures are very polite. And so when they nod their head, that doesn't mean that they're saying yes to you. That just means that they're understanding what you're saying. And so I think one thing that really captured me is that there's just this little nuances that can either make or break your business if you don't know or if you do or do not know how to interpret it, right? So I think it's just very important to have that that dimension yeah
2: it's an extra layer of communication right and depending on the the counterparty as you said a yes can mean a no in, in, a, in a different culture oh so. yes
0: <laughs> oh yeah. yes yep i've I've gotten trouble and i've gotten trouble before because i said oh the deal is done right because you're nodding your head yeah. and then they said <laughs> no <laughs> you,
2: you just open negotiations but before going into negotiations yeah. so business is very broad right and when people go into business at the university, it's usually, you know, management, marketing, operations, logistics, but valuation is something you don't see much. So could you break down what business valuation means and how, how businesses should think about valuation?
0: Sure. So basically, I always say that valuation is more of an art than it is a science because it's not something like where it's even accounting, right? When you say, oh, accounting is so black and white, but. Even then, there are nuances that you can do to accounting. But valuation is even more so. There's a lot of gray areas. And and the reason why I like it is because it's similar to the law, where you can basically argue your case, right? And it's all about creating a story. So, for example, if you're... like I deal a lot with companies that are trying to buy or sell a, you know, something, right? A company, an entity, a subsidiary. And so, if they're trying to sell themselves with valuation... It's not like you have the numbers, but then you have to have a story to back it up. Why, why did the revenues increase? Oh, it's because in the future, they're going to, they're going to have all these new customers. Why are they going to have these new customers? Oh, it's because of this. So it's a lot of times you have to be a bit of a storyteller, but you have to do it in numbers. And so, and with the numbers, you have to do the application. You have to apply them, right? And then you have to describe them. So I think that for me, that was the biggest draw. We're doing valuations. It's because. I can literally argue my point, (laughs) right? So there's usually a range of numbers, but I can say, okay, I think this is going to be worth X amount versus this amount based on the story, a reasonable story I tell them. So I think it's very fascinating.
2: Have you ever gotten into a situation where you're telling this story and kind of a few years go by and then the story doesn't line up and... It it it, it 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 doesn't meet, I'd say, the buyers or the investors' expectation. How do you deal with that in 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 the negotiation process and also the the after aftercare process? I'd say.
0: Sure. So so basically, when you do a valuation, it's at a point in time, right? So let's say I'm doing a valuation as of let's say as of December of last year, right? So then basically all the assumptions and all. These factors that you're looking at would be as of that point in time. How was the market at that time? How was the industry? How was the economy? And so you can say that, Hey, you know what? At that point, my, maybe my, my, my historicals indicate that I'm going to go X amount or I'm going to go this amount or this trajectory, but no one knows the future. Right. So then you can just basically. Put numbers down as reasonable as you can and then you put a little bit of indication or factor to calculate the risk but other than that you have to calculate it at a point in time but to answer your question i've had valuations where because i've done valuations that are after the fact so for 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 sec with securities and exchange commission they have to file something once they've acquired a company so i let's say they acquired a company for a million but then acquired it two years ago. So now I'm doing the valuation and trying to see if they've actually acquired it for the right amount. And I would say about maybe 60% of the time they've overpaid, (laughs) right? So they've overpaid and, and now I have to justify perhaps or not justify like why they've, you know, how they arrived to that value. And if they don't, then they have to explain why. Yeah,
2: because then this, the story yeah. was different at that time based on the, the valuation. So with a fresh pair of glasses or having more context, the whole valuation changes. So,
0: yes, so how exactly. much is the
1: valuation? When you, when you do a valuation, for us to have a better understanding, how much of it is the financial statements and the year reports and how much are other factors involved that influence kind of valuation as well?
0: Oh, yeah. So basically when you do evaluation, there are three basic methods, but one of them is called the income approach where you essentially look at the historicals and then you look at the projection. So I do a lot. I did a lot of valuations of biotech companies and tech companies, right? So where they, they, let's say they have a drug and they haven't released this drug, but then they said, Oh, but this type of drug will be will be, whatever, we'll give you, tw- you know, it'll be 20 million next year because let's say it's for cancer because the number of people who have this cancer in this type of environment, you know, so they calculate a lot of the statistics, right? So th- that one requires a lot of, as you said, factors beyond the financials. But then in a normal valuation, we do look at what the historicals are and then what they project in the future. So it really depends on the type of company because even the same thing with cannabis, like I valued a lot of cannabis companies where, you know, cannabis was, he is still right now, such a, a pretty risky and then very, very, like it's still a slightly new industry. But when I was valuing it five or seven years ago, it's, it was even more so. So you can't look at financials, right? So a lot of times that so we, we looked at, we looked at the regulations per state because that, that's what really dictates what they're going to make in the future, even if they get a license. So it really depends on the industry, to, to answer your question. Yeah,
2: industry and state can have a big impact on the, the, the way things go. And navigating back to, let's say, three years ago during the, the pandemic when COVID started, like mm-hmm. This shifted a lot of things. So businesses, like a, a lot yes. of tech companies, a significant rise in their valuations. As uh, companies like Zoom, because you know uh, people started to flood to remote work yeah. and uh, the remote sessions, etc. Other companies in the tourism and more the logistics sides kind of dropped down considerably. How did you get through that that time during that crisis? So valuing businesses and how did you, yeah, help them stay stay afloat? They think.
0: yeah so so actually so first to answer your question i want to give you a bigger context is that valuation basically valuation stayed the same except the purpose of the valuation is now different so before that i was doing valuations more for you know for companies that were acquired right so like a lot of industries are very acquisitive but then after even like maybe 21 and 22 this is gonna be sad a lot of the valuations i'm doing are for divorce cases So because, because a lot of companies are either, well, divorce cases are selling. They're either selling their company or they're getting divorced and then they have a company that they have together. So then they have to value it for a divorce proceeding. So
2: like family companies in, in that sense. Uh, Am I getting that right? Oh, okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. So let's, yeah. Oh, no, no. So let's say you, let's say you have a company. Let's say you own an engineering company, but you and your wife, you both own it. And now you're getting divorced. So now you have to value the business so you can split it 50 50. So then you need to know how much the value is. And so a lot of the purpose for the valuation for me has shifted to divorce cases, which is sad, but you know, it happens. And then also people who are selling. So a lot of the companies that I'm, that I valued in 2022 were restaurants because they're the ones that were selling a lot here. So. There was a shift in the type of companies that I acquired, that, that I was valuing. And then the purpose of the valuation also changed. And then, and then based, so based on that one, so if the industry, let's say it was restaurants, you know, there were a lot of risk involved. So then the valuation was slightly different. The methodology versus, let's say Zoom or a logistics company, right? Let's say you're delivering like, you know, le- delivering for Amazon. I mean, you are, you know, your multiples here for, for a business like that have increased. Because, you know, delivery has increased as well.
2: It's quite funny that you, well, yeah, it's sad actually that you mentioned it, that a lot of companies file for divorce cases. But then again, when, it makes me wonder when, I, I guess, people start their companies. Because usually, I'm not sure if this is the right term, but help me out here. Uh, I'm thinking about prenup. I, I've heard this word. But, oh, a yeah. prenup. Yeah, uh-huh. it's a that, up. yeah it's to a separate up. the assets from uh, one side and the other side. So, in, in case of the divorce, uh, that doesn't happen. So, to, is it that bad that people actually go all in together and they, they hope for, you know, <laughs> don't, don't expect well, they don't expect. The, <laughs> yeah, because no, uh, just, people go just, separate. Just place. to
1: give give an idea how weird it is. In the past years, we have uh-huh. seen Jeff Jeff Bezos break yep. up and, and, and get a divorce. We've seen yep. Bill Gates and Melinda Gates see a divorce, which is, it's just really like, of course, it's also part of the media, the new media and that things come out much more and they're much more out in the open. But when you mention that there are actually more settlements and before settlements now for valuation, it does make you think like, is there a broader picture that we're missing all mm-hmm. here or something?
0: I'm not sure if there's a. You know what? I think now it's just more high profile, right? Because now you're seeing a lot more high profile pe- picture um, people getting divorces, and then you know Melinda Jet Base's wife. I don't know. I forgot how much she got, but she is now not even Melinda Gates. Are that like you know they have so much money that they're giving away like right now? I saw two hundred and fifty million dollars in in grants, right, to like two hundred and fifty entrepreneurs, right. So, but but I guess the point is that I think the whole thing with splitting businesses have gotten more in the forefront now that you have this more high-profile divorces. But it's been going on for years, even if it's a small business, like, let's say, and even if it's only, let's say, the husband or the wife that has the business, but here in the U.S., you have to split the assets evenly, right? So then you still have to go and, you know, let's say if you... And and a lot of times, let's say you have a business and it's valued at a million, then you have to think about, okay, Aside from splitting the business, do you, what do you do with it? Do you decide to keep it? Do this one person decide to keep it? Do you want to run it together? Do you want to sell it? Right. So then there's also that added complication. So I work with a few people as well, advisors that once I value, they figure out, okay, well, what do I do next? Right. What's the best? What's the best method to go through this divorce and then split the business?
1: Yeah, just out of curiosity, because in my personal situation, it, it doesn't matter because my wife and I arrange things differently. But mm-hmm. like, for instance, if you have a husband and a wife and say the wife or the husband owns the business and it's valued at, let's keep it easy, like a million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a divorce situation. And the owner gets that it's a valuation of a million dollars, which basically means half a million goes to the other person. But where does that money yep. come from? Because it's a valuation; it's actually a business. It's not really like the money is physically there.
2: That it's not hard assets. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yes. And so so then that's after you do the valuation, you decide. So what do I do? Do you wanna do you wanna buy out the other person, right? And then do you do you wanna buy them out? How do you buy them out? Do you do do you take a loan? Do you give them? Let's say it's five hundred thousand. Do you pay them in equal installments, right? So then you can pay them out of the proceeds or something like that not like not, if you decide not to sell it right so then you decide, let's say you decide not to sell it so now you have to as you said you have to find the half a million to pay the other spouse yeah so you so, can either so, get loans yeah
1: so basically so
0: maybe don't get divorced that's
1: no, the <laughs> either either don't get divorced or do a prenup because yeah. you kind of end up doing the same thing that you had to do in the prenup you're kind of doing after you're getting divorced as well because in the prenup you're actually already stating like this is this is what we're going to do whenever the situation arises that we split up. So basically, okay. they're kind of doing the same thing that you would do in a pre in, in prenup arrangements, where you have decide, okay, if 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 we split up, how much of the business or how do you kind of give give my portion of what I invested into the relationship. So I find it very uh-huh. funny that people don't take a prenup, but then they divorce and they actually have to discuss the things after the yeah. divorce that could have been in a prenup so i i think that's that's a very interesting interesting yeah perspective from from my side
0: well well two things right so first in when people think that when you have a let's say okay you say oh we're gonna have a prenup because you have money beforehand right you're like oh i don't want to give my money to my wife so then let's have a prenup so then when we get divorced i don't want her to take half but then what if you had the business after right so let's say you you you, you know you ha- you started with nothing and then you you know you get married and now and then you built up this business so that's not part of your brand. Then, then
1: you should give you you should give shares straight away because it, so that that's my perspective from things that I would give my wife shares if we would do a business together and we would have a up situation i would give I would give her shares in a company as well like and, that's oh, where so
0: nice. no, but that's
1: that's. I mean, that's how <laughs> I think. I, I understand that people still think differently in this perspective. Yeah. But there could also be cases, and I think this is interesting as well because one of the discussions we had was like having a prenup. It also means that if business goes sideways, and especially with the Surinamese law, if business goes sideways, the the collectors they can't claim anything that's owned by the family.
0: Okay. Uh huh. So that's also so the then- other way
1: around. Yeah.
0: Uh huh. So okay. So if so, if the business, let's say, goes bankrupt, then they can't go after the family, right?
1: No, because and, there's in the uh-huh. pre-op, it said that that business is separate from the family.
0: Oh, okay. So I guess here yeah. maybe the same. Well, would that here fall where under
2: can, like an LLC structure and something yes, like that? I was yeah. gonna
0: say. Yeah, because then so you just have to change the the structure. Yeah, because then you yeah, separate you the the
2: legal entities to you know a a natural person and yeah I, I don't know what the technical terms are on those things, yeah. but I, I kind of get the picture there. But then again, there's different purposes as you said. You can either buy them out or find a way to pay them if you don't have the liquid assets on hand. Mm-hmm. So then comes the question something you talk about is, you know, finding the truth behind it, the reason why people want to sell, the reason why people want to exit, or why they want to acquire something. Like, what's your process in when you engage these people, these their businesses on finding the truth? Like, how, how do you engage them? What what does finding the truth mean to you?
0: Okay, so I, I guess, it, let's say in the beginning, when people approach me, and then typically it's a It's a business, like, for example, I, yesterday I got approached by a business owner and then they said that they wanted to sell eventually because he's in his eighties, right? So then he said that maybe he's not going to, he's only going to have a few more years before he decides to retire. But then this business owner had reached out to me maybe five years ago, right? But he wanted at that point, he thought he wanted to sell, but he didn't. And so, for me, a lot of it is finding the truth of their purpose or their motivation why they want to sell and a lot of times, what I find with business owners, and I'm sure you feel the same way is that it's their baby, so then they don't want to sell, they think they're ready but then but then but then a lot of them actually back out after we have done the valuation because they say, "Oh my my sweat and equity was much more th- worth more than that, right? So for me, a the biggest thing is really finding the motivation for for why they're selling, and then and then B, finding the finding the truth behind the numbers, right? Is it really what they're telling me? But for me, before I even get to that point, it's really figuring out, like like psychologically and mentally, if they're ready to sell, and then their motivation behind it. So a lot of it is uh, honestly being a psychiatrist and <laughs> and being a therapist. Yeah, so you <laughs> study
1: law. You study law to become a therapist and a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Yes, yeah, it's interesting.
2: Yeah, Yeah. the the numbers, looking at the numbers comes after the fact, after finding the reason. Yeah,
0: (laughs) exactly. Yeah, because, for example, I I also became a mediator during COVID. And this was in response to a lot of the valuations that I was doing based on a dispute. So, for example, divorce is a dispute, right? So I do valuation based on that. But then I also do valuation based on a shareholder. Let's say they have two shareholders and they're fighting and they want to split the business. So I do a valuation based on that. So a lot of the... But yeah, aside from that, I have to act as a mediator and say, okay, in order for me to find the truth behind these numbers or behind the operations, I really need to dig deep about a lot of stuff first that that goes be, you know, deeper deeper than the numbers, honestly. So... It, yeah, it's a lot of therapy work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I now understand the, the earlier statement you made that it, it's more of an art form than an actual science. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. And
2: yes, yeah, exactly. you have to, you know, manage emotions, manage expectations. Yeah. Deal with people and make sure that both parties come out, you know, have happier out of that situation.
0: Yes, exactly. And then, and, and I always say that, you know, like I just, I just put on what's reasonable. You know, I don't, you know, I don't put something that's too high, too low. It's just what's reasonable based on what I find out, right? Because then a lot of times I have, this is something that you have to file. You have to file it with the IRS, right? Like with, with either the, the, you know, for taxes or you file it with the Securities and Exchange Commission or it may go to court. So the things that I do have to be supportable and reasonable.
1: So, so how much of the the idea to go into mediation Is actually to prevent things going to court, to the, to the court.
0: Oh, yeah. Actually, a lot of it, because when they say about maybe 80% of cases that are filed settle, right? So it's a very high number. So not a lot of, not a lot of cases actually go to court. So as you said, like a lot of it is really kind of mediating this, the circumstances, the situation. So it doesn't have to go to that because going to court is expensive. And a lot of times, You're only going to court because, for me, because you feel like you're not being heard. And so when you're mediating, the biggest thing they tell us is you have to make sure that you hear both sides or that they hear each other out. Because a lot of times, you can kind of mediate expectations and then prevent dispute if you just let people say what they need to say.
2: Is there... So I've read the book, what's it called again? Negotiating Like Your Life Depends on it by. Chris was and, and he goes about, you know, negotiating and his former FBI negotiator. And he talks about nev- never settling for no. And
0: oh, I'm uh-huh. not sure if
2: you read the book or are familiar with it. no But at the core of it, so that, that's the surface uh, level cover, you know, to get your attention. But at the core of it, it comes down to, you know, listening and letting the counterparty feel heard and letting them realize it's, it's not about persuasion. It's, it's about actually... Letting them realize for themselves that that's something that that they want. So, are there specific techniques or, I'd say, phrasing that you use to help mediate parties when there's a dispute to to get them to open up and share what's really bothering them or making them find their own truth?
0: Yeah. So, so there are two things that I use. First, and I and admittedly, I hope no one is no one I know is hopefully. They don't take this, you know, they don't take this to heart. But I've used some of these techniques when I'm dealing with relationships. So, for example, one of them is that people are uncomfortable with silence. So if you, even if it's just a few seconds, and, and I always found this very interesting, is that if you, let's say if someone says something, right? Let's say you're trying to negotiate something. Someone says something and the other party hesitates for even five seconds. But five seconds seems like a lifetime. You know, it sounds like it's two minutes. Inevitably, the other person will say something like to even counteract the other person. Right. So, but so I always say, if you keep quiet, people will always say something first. <laughs> so that's like one of the biggest things that I learned. And with regards to phrasing, two things I always say is that. So when someone is talking, I just, I just nod and then I say, go on. And then people will just tell you whatever they need, whatever you need to know. Right. But yeah, keeping quiet and saying that and saying for me, the biggest phrase is I hear you. Right. Is it's big. It's really big because when I was, I remember I was mediating, I was mediating for the courts here in Orange County and there were, there was, there were, there was a party and they haven't seen each other in four years. And so now they're going to court for the first time. And literally, I said, oh, my God, this is going to be very hard because they haven't seen each other in several months, or in several years. But the first thing is that the other party just said, you just don't listen to me. I just want to be heard. And I said, go ahead, tell tell her what you need to say. And then inevitably, like within five minutes, I say, okay, because they were settling for, I, I forget how much, maybe 10 or 15,000. And I said, well, tell her what you need to say. And after that, he goes, okay, well, you know what? That's all I need to say. That's it. I go, okay. So then they ended up dropping it. But a lot of times, like, giving people the forum to just talk is, yeah, is is big. So silence it's, and it's, then it's saying, insane. I give you. Yeah.
1: yeah. But it's, it's, it's very, insane, like, it's very, to
0: very yeah,
1: To what lengths people would go to fight for just something really really small it's, it's really it's really yeah, for being heard and I, I have yeah, to I, yeah, I have to laugh yeah. there's a reason I'm laughing because there's a promotional video about a match that's gonna happen between Manchester United, Manchester United which is one of the biggest uh, football clubs soccer clubs in the UK and Wrexham which yeah. is a, a club that has been taken over by, by two actors and they wanted to promote because it's the first time that Wrexham is actually gonna play in the US They're going to play in San Diego. Uh And so they show this clip of the two actors, Rob McClendon and Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, of course, the big big superstar. They bought the club, the small the Welsh club. And they're going to play against Manchester United. And on the other side of the call is Sir Alex Ferguson, who is a sir in in the UK, one of the most respected Mm -hmm. people in, in the business. And the two actors are talking to each other, saying like, listen, he's a master negotiator. So we have to pull off our A game. And they start the call with him and they start talking to him and respecting him and he doesn't respond and they just, <laughs> they just lose their mind. And then at a sudden they just say something and they close off the call because they are so intimidated by him. And then <laughs> after that, the, they showed us the story from his side, whereas somebody from his team walks in and asks like, hey, how did the, the call go? And he just goes and says to her like, well, yeah, they were on mute. So I didn't hear anything. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's not that no, that's funny. But yeah, so yeah. people so are just uncomfortable. Uncomfortable no
1: yeah. with silence is indeed, And I think with everything in relationships, and, and even with your mm-hmm. friends, if it falls silent, somebody will be like, I need to say something.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But try it. I mean, but the thing is, I remember even three seconds of silence feels like a lifetime. So I have, I'm a natural talker, so I have to like clip my, I <laughs> said, okay. Give me three I have to literally count. I go, okay. My God, it's been, it's, has it only been three seconds? Right. <laughs> yeah. But it It. It really worked. So,
1: so it's you, also you can tell people see, people will tell you the silence secrets. works yeah. in the relationship. Silence works in the relationship with, with listening. Because what people always tell you is like, become a good listener. But you can also achieve sometimes the same thing through silence. Did you say that?
0: Yes. But then I, I guess another. Th- tip that i learned now that i think about it is and this is also very simple is that repeating what other people say but just repeating it in a different way right so for example because a lot of times let's say if i'm negotiating something i i haven't met like i've never met these people before i'm meeting them for the first time at this mediation you know circle and so a lot of times i'm repeating something for my own benefit right because i didn't understand but then the biggest thing about negotiation or also kind of facilitating something is re basically restating what they say, right? So then it also makes them feel heard and then it also clarifies it on your part. So for example, you say, oh, did you say this or do you mean this? And if they say yes, okay, then they feel like, oh, okay, she actually did hear me, right? And then they'll correct you if it's not really, and then for your benefit. If it's incorrect, then you know you know you're correct. Yeah,
2: getting that clarification is key because you don't want to go with an assumption that oh, this is what they meant. And in in the book, they talk. Uh, he mentions it. it it's, I think the technique you're describing he labels it as mirroring, so repeating the last three Ooh, words or yes. kind of the the most important words of the the statement they made, and then just restating it and using things like it feels like you're feeling this way, or I heard that you mentioned this. Is that correct? And then just asking for exactly. that Exactly. So going from negotiating and a lot of disputes, kind of the divorces now, how much do, I guess, if you compare the divorces versus the more high stakes businesses, like between companies, how much do they differ if, if you're in the mediation seat or the negotiating seat? Like, is, is the pressure the same? Is the pressure different? Like, how how are expectations?
0: Oh, well, you know divorce cases are always they it doesn't for divorce cases it doesn't matter how big or small the business is there's always this tension that you can that you, you you cannot contain right unless they're just very amicable with each other but but I think um with divorce cases, it's a little bit more personal because then you you know a lot of times you're dealing with people who have their businesses their whole life, right, and then you're also dealing with this added emotion so then You have to be a little bit more sensitive. And a lot of times you're also, when you're doing divorce cases, you either are acting as the one valuation expert for both for the couple or they can have two. So then, you know, you also have to be a little bit more cognizant about that. And then for divorce cases too, a lot of times the person who has built the business, they'll say, oh no, the business is worth minimal, right? the person who like actually owns it let's say let's say the husband owns it and they're like oh no it's only worth a hundred thousand and the wife will say no it's worth a million you know because obviously they want when they split it the one the wife or whoever the other party wants to get as much as possible whereas the the other person's like no i don't want to pay that much so you have that added complication right of kind of dealing with people's egos and emotion. But with regards to one that's a bit more, let's say it's more for corporate, you know, you don't have that, you know, you don't have that added emotion. Although the the emotion is a little different. Sometimes like when I'm when I'm dealing with that where they're trying to sell their company, the emotion is more like, oh how come my company is worth it's just worth this much. Yeah. Right? It's it's so they that, feel
1: like it's undervalued. Whereas the the soul, the the actual like if it's a small business, they're like, no Keep it as low as possible, like you mentioned. I can imagine that,
0: exactly that, that would definitely play
1: yeah. a role. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But emotions, yeah, emotions are a little bit different. But there's still emotion, you know, emotions involved, unless it's just a very big company, and then you're just dealing, you know, dealing with something that they need to file. Let's say with you know, IRS is the Internal Revenue Service, right, for taxes. Let's say something so- like that. Yeah.
1: So, but for, you're you're talking about emotions now, which brings up another interesting question. You're based out of North America, the U.S., but you've also have experience with 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 programs in entrepreneurial programs in Asia, in Europe, in Latin America. So, what are things that are what are some similarities? Things that are the same in business, like everywhere in the world, and what what are things that are different in each continent?
0: Oh, okay. So I think, so I think the one that's different is how people express themselves, right? So I'm going to make a generalization. So people in Latin America are obviously about a bit more expressive than, let's say, someone from Japan or someone from China, right? So those are, I think, as I said before, nuances that you have to be cultural differences and nuances that you have to take into account. So, for example, if, I've, if I'm if i naturally talkative, but I'm talking to someone who is a bit more reserved, then I have to tone down, you know, maybe like my demeanor and even the way you dress and even the things, you know, like even the way you behave to fit the culture, right? To make them more comfortable, because when you make someone more comfortable, then they're, they tend to tell you the truth and they tend to tell you more things, right? So, which helps when you're valuing something, then you're not blindsided, blindsided. Because then a lot of times, as you said, when we go back, valuation is only half financials and then half of them are other factors that you have to quantify. And you can't quantify that if people don't talk to you and talk to you truthfully, right? So I think that one is the same that I think that's the big difference that the cultural differences. And I think one thing is the same is I think I'm going to tie it back to listening is at the end of the day, people just want to be heard. And so... Being nice to people, I think like it's, it's universal, right? But yeah, I mean, I think just being a good person and being nice is something that it doesn't matter. It translates to, you know, it translates throughout, throughout cultures. So
2: and to from going wide and zooming it back into California, you're based in California, a lot of startups, startup culture there, entrepreneurship culture there. And mm-hmm. a lot of these, especially tech startup raise funds. They go to pre-seed rounds. And then they, they get these astronomical valuations without getting a product on the market yet. So what's uh-huh. your take on the hypervaluation of these tech startups? Like, do, do you think they're o- overvalued? Do you think they get money too easily? Like, what, what's your view on that?
0: Yeah, well, for, first, first, what I want is I want to be able to get one of those and get funding. Like some random thing, right? but but like in all honesty though i it's it's kind of because a lot of times valuation is also very emotional right and as i said it's the story it's a story behind it because i look at for example do you have something called shark tank i'm sure you guys are familiar with something okay so for example like i look at shark tank and then some of the products and i see some of the products that they have funded And then I've looked at maybe years before, years after that, and they, you know, they, you know, they never get off the ground. But it's really, for me, just, that's why it's, if you're selling something, it's really important to tell the story, right? And then, uh, because it really evokes emotion. But that's, but to answer your question, I think that's why there's so many, I think, overvalued startups here in California. But, but I think that's changing because before they, you know, a lot of the companies are so flushed with money that they just need to invest in something. Right. So, but but now I think they're a little bit more cautious in investing. So now they're very specific about the industry. So, for example, like right now, you know, maybe something in logistics or something in EV, because like electronic vehicles, I think. And then AI, yeah, artificial intelligence. So it just depends on the industry. Yeah.
1: So Diego, do you think we have room for one more in-depth question, or would you rather go towards
2: overrated under it? I think we got. Have- Time for one more in-depth question. You got something?
1: Yeah. So I was wondering because Christina, you work as well with uh, local Filipino businesses, and you actually mm-hmm. have something which is quite kind of interesting. You've set up a product showroom, like to to present Philippine products to the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and the inspiration behind it?
0: Sure. Yeah. So so basically, it's called Emporium, and Emporium is a the first. Because we're private, private slash, um, government partnership where we're able to create a showroom at the Department of Trade and Industry office, which is part of the Consul General's office in LA. And so basically what our goal is, is that we, there's so many good Philippine products that especially ingredients and something with food that they can't take over here because they don't have a place to show it. And so for us, the natural extent, well, The selfish extension is that A, I wanted to try and sample these different products, right? Because they send us samples. But B, it's also to showcase them and to have people touch and feel and experience it. Because a lot of times these are very small entrepreneurs where they maybe even just sell on Amazon. But aside from that, you know, if it's something that's tactile, like people can't really touch the product. So it's really a place for them. To, co- to see and touch and feel the products. And then we have buyers come that can actually order the products that they want to.
1: So because I find it really interesting because there is some governmental involvement there, I guess, that the, the government from the Philippines kind of... Is this something that you would consider that people or countries especially should pay more attention to in their foreign affairs that they actually give, like, the embassies... or maybe, Embassies might be the only little bit diff- difficult because of the security aspect but consulates mm-hmm. are like associated organizations in the room to represent their company because there are some great opportunities there if, if you tell it like that actually having a showroom at the same place where the consulate of the country for instance is is this something that how would we be able to learn from that for instance i would be sure to be able to learn from the philippines in that in that sense
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. Well, I think. I think what you're trying to say, yes, this is something that you can duplicate, right? So this model is something that's very, I would say, very doable and very easy. Not very easy, but it's doable to duplicate. And so for us, it's really just a trying to figure out a there was a space, right? There was a space for us at the department, that trade and industry office, and B, they're just very willing to work with us. Is that you know a lot of one thing i found about you know even the one here in la is that they're very open to just let's say to other businesses to for partnerships but yeah i think this is something that's very needed because if you're let's say a company in suriname and then you're trying to you know you have diff- you have you know really great products and you buy them you maybe you may sell them on amazon but if someone like me who needs to touch the products right you, it would be great if you can if there's a place that you can do that something you can experience so but yeah absolutely if you have any ideas Yeah interesting
1: my i is kind of like yeah <laughs> at the moment
0: <laughs> Yeah yes and I can I can send you yeah I can send you some pictures so basically what we do is aside from the aside from the showroom we also do different pop-ups so we do markets with them as well and then we also do Yeah so we do a lot of marketing behind it and then we do we work with wholesalers as well so we work with wholesale buyers here so we do a lot of matchmaking so
2: Yeah, especially when it comes to physical products, food, and things with not such a long shelf life, you need to be able to yes. experience it. Like, like, will it last? Will people stick to it? Like, how fast is it going? Like, the velocity. And that, that's quite interesting. Yeah. So to close it off, and actually, I, I don't want to go to the over-under. I actually have a different question in mind in the context of valuation and ending this episode, mm-hmm. exit planning. Like mm-hmm. when you think about valuation and especially growing a business and one that you plan to, I'd say, eventually sell or hand over to your, the next generation, like how important is exit planning when we're thinking about valuation and how should people look at exit planning? Because you mentioned before, for example, the the person you talked with five years ago, they they wanted to sell, but then now now they're having second thoughts. Like, how yes. how much should people think about exit planning in their business?
0: Yeah, I I think people don't think of it as as much as they should, and they don't think of it as long term as they should. Right. So a lot of times people say, "Oh, I want to sell my business in six months," so. Yeah, I usually say you should be thinking about exiting within b- maybe three to five years. Five years is along on the long side, but three to five years before you're thinking about exiting, because a lot of times you have to prep your business for a sale. So whether you want to make sure that your accounting is in place or your, you know, your trademarks are actually in place, you know, anything that's legal and, and financial, you have those in place, right? But I think that also the biggest thing is making sure. I always say this, when they're buying your business, they're not buying you. So unless, you know, you're going to be as a consultant for them, right? You have to make sure that you are you are not needed because there is actually something, a discount for someone who's a key person. Let's say the business is run by one person and let's say it's an accounting firm where you're the face. So if someone buys your firm, there's going to be a discount because you're the key person. You're not going with them. So automatically, not automatically, but a lot of times the value will be lower unless you can make yourself redundant. I call it redundant. So you have to make sure that if someone can't do your work, some, if you can't do your work, someone else can do it for you. Right? Because then what you even think, what if you get sick? What if this happens? What if this happens? Like now who's gonna do the work? So you have to make sure that you have to set things in place so that people that so that your work can continue even without you. Which is very hard, but you know, that's something you need to do if you're thinking about exit planning.
2: Food for thought, food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got enough space for one over, under. Why don't you start? Okay, hey, overrated,
1: well. underrated. So basically what we do is we ask you a question about something and you tell us whether you feel it's overrated, underrated, or proper, or properly rated. That sometimes occurs Okay. Well. And then you have some room if you want to talk about it, whether or not why you said that. So let's Let's start with AI, artificial intelligence. Is it overrated or underrated?
0: I think it's underrated right now. I think there's more room to expansion, for expansion because I see it more and more, like even with travels from, you know, overseas, right? How they've been using AI. So I think this is co- going to continue to grow. So. All
2: right. Mine is quite, I'd say, recent. Would you say mm-hmm. the acquisition of the... Banks get overrated or underrated. I'd say that, the yeah.
0: Okay. I, maybe this is more, maybe, maybe a political question, right? Because depending on what your political leanings here, it's like, oh, no, they shouldn't have done that. They should have done that. But I, I mean, I think, I think they needed to do it. So maybe it's neutral. I think it's something that needed to be done in order to prevent the stock, uh, you know, a, a downfall of the stocks, right? I think otherwise, I think it's just gonna, just gonna tumble. Yeah. So I think it's just keeping yeah. the valuations neutral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome.
2: No, thanks for sharing that, Christina. And I think we've gotten some quite some insight on valuation and some things we haven't really thought about when we're running a business, especially, you know, exit planning, the the divorce stuff was really interesting that, you know, that's quite happening a lot more. And the negotiation technique that you shared about keeping some silence yeah. and just people wanting to be heard. And I think that's very yeah. important to take home, not just in business, but just in the relationships in general. So with that being said, Christina, one last question. Where can people find you and learn more about what you're doing?
0: Sure. So you can find out about me. So it's sparkvation.com, which is my consulting I can, and then, But if you go to christinaspeer so just my name, it has everything that I've been doing. So... Everything from YLI, my mentorship, the stuff that I've been doing, both for-profit and nonprofit side. So just all my interests.
1: Awesome. So, Christina, we really want to thank you for this episode. It has been a really fun episode and we learned quite a lot, like Diego already mentioned. You've also said that people can reach out either to your business or to your personal profile to connect with you or to your personal website to connect with you. So we really want to thank you for being part of Social Convos. For everybody who tuned in and was listening or is listening or watching the replay of this episode, thank you as well. As usual, Diego will drop uh, versions and audio versions to all streaming platforms for you to listen to. And we want to fight you back for the next episode of Social Golfos. Next week, same place, same time. Thank you again. Bye-bye.